Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. Here is an excerpt from a 2016 debate at the Texas Public Policy Foundation about the risks and rewards of calling an Article 5 Convention of States, headlined by Michael Farris, Chancellor of Patrick Henry College and co-founder of Convention of States Project. Farris gives us his unique perspective on the Article 5 process. I want to begin by uh, using some of my background in the homeschooling movement to, to make an analogy here. I've been told many times in my life that what I wanted to do is impossible. Uh, I was told that successfully starting the homeschooling movement was impossible and legalizing homeschooling would be impossible. In fact, a lawyer in Fort Worth, a very good lawyer in Fort Worth, told me all this would be impossible. Um, and if you think of the odds of what we were going against, we were going not against uh, the state establishment, uh, only the state establishment like the teachers' union, the state school boards association, the state principals' association, the state superintendents' association, the entire education establishment was against us. Massive bureaucracies were against us. A lot of society was indifferent to it. We had a dedicated small group that wanted to do the right thing. We stood fast and we worked hard and we beat the establishment, uh, state after state after state. Uh, we were told it's impossible. I, I've also worked on the uh, other side where we stopped something where we were told it was impossible to stop it. I was, I'm old enough, Trent, that I was there fighting against the ERA. I was litigating it. I traveled with Phyllis um, in Washington State and uh, helped litigate it. I went to my very first ALEC meeting in about 1980 um, on, on the ERA litigation. And, and so the, uh, it, a couple of summers ago, I was uh, on the floor of the U.S. Senate and the Foreign Relations Committee, and uh, a guy from Heritage that was with me trying to stop the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities said, there's no chance in hell we're going to, to win. I said, maybe not there, but in heaven there is. And, uh, uh, and we did. We stopped, we stopped the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So I have lived through um, seeing the impossible done time and time again. I've been on the, on the battlefield of doing it. And I think we're at a moment in our history we have to, to ask ourselves very fundamental questions. Do we really believe that no branch of government should be the judge of how much power it should have? And if we actually believe that, why will we get distracted by all kinds of other questions? Just because uh, I mean, uh, that there are other questions, other things that we need to do, uh, doesn't mean we shouldn't also do this. And just because that or an organization doesn't feel called to get involved with this, okay, that's no problem. You know, um, my daughter runs a, a ministry for Romanian orphans. I'm active in that ministry. I don't think that the Romanian orphanage ministry needs to get involved with this. And if your state policy organization doesn't want to get involved, that's fine. You don't have to be involved with this if you think you have other priorities. What we'd ask is just stay out of our way. Stay out of the way of the people who want to do this, who believe that they're called to do it. Uh, and so the real difference, frankly, from the homeschooling success story that I've told you and the Article 5 process is when we were doing homeschooling, either conservatives helped us or they stayed out of the way. They didn't get in our way. They weren't throwing bricks at us. They weren't dropping stones on our head. They weren't you know, saying that we're threatening the Constitution. And so for every you know, vilification that you face, Trent, which I, I don't know how often that's been, uh, we, we in the Article 5 movement get vilified every day 
by conservatives, by people who, who, who profess to be conservatives. And so if all your point is, is there might be other priorities in life, we, we actually need to still fight Medicaid expansion in Oklahoma, go fight it, you know? I'll, I'll hold your arms up, I'll do what I can. It's not my battle today, that is your battle today, just like the homeschool bill that I have to work in Missouri is not your battle today. But nonetheless, I've got, I've got multiple battles, you've got multiple battles. Uh, but when conservatives throw bricks and stones at us on this, it doesn't help anything. And if it wasn't for conservatives throwing bricks and stones at us, we would be at 34 states today. And we would be, we would be talking about, um, you know, the, the, the implementing the details of this. And so my first request was, if you don't want to play, fine, don't play. Just stop throwing bricks and stones. But if you do think that you want to be a part of a... Of a, a, a a game-changing moment in the United States, then would ask you to consider that. I, I, I frankly don't read the gradualism uh, of, the, of the founders the way you do, uh, Trent. The, the, the difference of dates between the Annapolis Convention and calling the Constitutional Convention was under a year. Um, and so the, uh, you know, yeah, they were deliberate and gradual, but they weren't letting any moss grow under there. Madison was moving as fast as he possibly could move, and he was pushing things as fast as he possibly could do so. And there were other people helping him. Other people believed the same things. So, I mean, George Washington, you know, was helpful in his own way. He was more deliberate, perhaps, than Madison in his style. But we're not talking 10 years, 20 years. We're talking 10 months, 12 months that kind of deliberation. And we've already been at this process you know, way more than enough time to deliberate. The, the scholarship has been done and continues to be done. I spent the last six months a great amount of time, hundreds and hundreds of hours, reading through the documentary history of the, of the, of the United States ratification of the Constitution to write the Law Review article I wrote this morning. There's tons of information in that about the process that just proves that, you're, that the, uh, the point of um, you know, Congress proposing legislation, it, A, it all failed, and B, it, it, it violates clear history that we now have on our side. They didn't have the history. Congress was wrong about lots of things in the 60s and in the 70s. And Congress can, is wrong uh, again. And, you know, your, your generalization, the Supreme Court doesn't agree with Rob Nadelson, that's true about Commerce Clause. It's not true about Article 5. And the Supreme Court has not ruled on the questions that that you know that would be uh, potentially relevant here, and that is whether or not aggregation, you know, is it one state one vote? There are no Supreme Court decisions on that. The the, the Supreme Court precedent that's relevant here is Article One power is irrelevant in Article Five. The necessary and proper clause does not give them the authority, and all the legislation. The Baker versus Carr era was Article One necessary and proper clause based legislation, and so there are they were in violation of the 1790s precedent of the Supreme Court when they were proposing it, and it all failed. And we know from Youngstown Sheet and Two versus Sawyer, when you have failed legislation by Congress, if it derives any intent so whatsoever, the implication is it intends the opposite of the failed legislation. And so the, the net legislative record is Congress doesn't believe that it has the power to regulate a constitutional uh, amendments convention, despite the fact that they introduced a lot of bills. They've introduced all kinds of crazy bills. Introduction of bills proves nothing. The question of, that you asked two or three times in your presentation is, what would we be willing to trade off? That's where this is dramatically different 
than a act, normal legislation where you, you are making implicit deals from time to time on various things. And, um, you know, in the homeschool world, there were times where I had uh, to get homeschooling to be legalized in New York. We had to agree to um, regulations that I would have never agreed to in Idaho or Wyoming or Colorado because the political climate in those states would have permitted us to go further than we would have been able to do in New York. And so there is a real possibility, as, as Rita alluded to earlier, that we might not get everything we would want to get. We might not get a purist version. I can't imagine, you're, you're right, I cannot imagine us coming out of a uh, convention of states with Social Security uh, not left intact, especially for the people that are currently in the program. It's, it's not going to happen. That is politically impossible. But to get the federal government out of other forms of commerce cause regulation is doable. That's what you do at a convention. Where you need to have the conversation is in a place where you actually have the authority to do something about it. Otherwise, we're just wasting motion and doing things that, that don't matter. Uh, you know, we, we can talk these things through in a, in, a, in a general sense, but when you get into the crucible of the moment of the convention and you're designing the details just like they did it at the, uh, um, at the Constitutional Convention, not everything Madison said and wanted to do happened at the convention. And so he had to make deals uh, on the fly because he wasn't the only voice. He, did, he wasn't even the only voice from Virginia. Virginia voted against Madison's position from time to time in the, in the Constitutional Convention. And that's what happens at a convention. You, when, you know, there's an old saying, it's hard to, uh, to steer a ship that's in dock. And to, to expect that we can flesh out the details at a, at a, at a today like this is we're kidding ourselves. You flesh out the details when you got the authority to act. Now, coming in with knowledge, with background, with understanding is important. But you don't acquire that in two or three years. You acquire that over, the, uh, over being involved in public policy for 30, 40 years, like, every, like the vast majority of people would be at the convention. I fully intend, you know, uh, the legislature of Virginia have to agree to this, but I fully intend to be a delegate at the convention. And I'm not going to bring two or three months worth of work or two or three years worth of work. I'm bringing in 40 years of constitutional activism and political reality and will blend it all together. Just as Madison didn't walk in with just a few months of research, he brought in his entire life of political experience. And that's the kind of thing that we're, we're going to think about. The question before us in our, so our society really is this. What is the purpose of government? Do we really believe in freedom? Do we really believe in limited government anymore? Because the attack that, that uh, the left article, that leftist author that said constitutionalism is the problem, that's really the, a, a big way to focus the issue. If we believe that the purpose of government is to pr produce life, liberty, and protect life, liberty, and property, then we can have a free country. If we believe that the purpose of government is to pr uh, provide for our needs, then we can't have a free government, free country. Socialism and freedom do not coexist. And a free government requires a constitution. It requires constitutionalism. It requires limited government. And the question is, are we going to have a limited government that is actually limited? And if uh, the, the functioning of, of the Constitution at the federal level right now is the Constitution is functionally in shreds. 
And we have one moment in time to decide whether we want to try to fix it or not. And if we wring our hands and decide, you know, this is just too hard, or we might not get everything we want, ladies and gentlemen, we might as well just, you know, pack it up and, and give up on government, period. Because it is going to overtake us. The, the debt is going to crash us. We are at an, a watershed moment. I, uh, I've lived through all these, you know, most horrible presidential predictions longer than you have. I, uh, you know, and you're, you're right about that. You know, the, those predictions of dire straits, you know, they're coming again. And I don't know. I, I, they, they don't make any, any, uh, uh, any sense at some level. But what does make sense is this. We have steady 200 years plus of growth of the federal government. And we have a, a, a tool over here that lets the states decide whether or not to reduce the power of the federal government. If we don't use that tool and bring back some of that power, just doing some of it sets the precedent for time and eternity that we can do it again. And setting it is essential that we set the precedent that the states have the ability to rein in the federal government, even if we don't get everything we want, even if we only get two or three of the six or seven amendments that I would like. Okay, we have called a convention. We've had the entire American public focused on the idea of limited government, and we have scared Washington, D.C. to death once and for all by succeed. I think we will succeed on some level, whether it's you know, exactly what it is, I don't know. Limitations on the power of the court, requiring the, the president to stop issuing executive orders with his phone and his pen. You know, there, there will be something that will be successful out of this. I think we'll get about four or five uh, provisions that would be successful, but it might not be that many. It might be seven, might be three, who knows? But getting one that reigns in the power of the federal government through a successful convention, puts to rest once and for all the whole fear of a runaway convention. And we can take them down time and time again. The threat of that, of that power is worth having the robust instrument. We need this instrument in our society. We need to have a credible threat. I uh, um, have 10 kids. I uh, spanked my oldest daughter on one day when she was uh, you know, pretty little more than I spanked my last three kids ever in their life combined. Uh, and she deserved it. D Doug knows her, she deserved it. And she will tell you she deserved it. But my kids all grew up with the credible threat that dad would spank you if you needed it. And they behaved accordingly. I've got great kids who are walking with God, they're all grown now, I've got 19 grandkids. They're, because there was a credible threat that I was going to actually parent them. And they knew it, and they knew that I meant it. When the states stand up and actually parent the federal government for a change, it'll change. It's an unruly teenager that has absolutely gone to pot, and we need to do what we can to stop them from continuing on uncorrected. The mere correction Will, is, is more worth than worth doing. And getting limitations on the power of the Supreme Court, getting limitations on the power of Congress, getting limitations on the power of the bureaucracy and the president, those are really big goals. If we aim small for, for small goals, we're gonna achieve, at best, small goals. If we aim for great goals, 
at best, we'll achieve great goals. If we don't get it all in one fell swoop, that's okay, because we'll live to be another day to help continue the process in the right direction. It is about momentum. It is time in this country to get momentum swinging in the right direction, and swinging in the direction of constitutionalism, and swinging in the direction of limited government. And if we do that, we have done a great thing for our generation. <clears throat> Well, thank you both for your opening presentations. Um, with my first question, let's assume we get to 34 states. As we know, the left uh, has for decades now been changing the Constitution simply through fiat. How, let's try to speculate for a moment here. Let's say we get to a convention of states. How do you think the left might try to expand or consolidate its power at a convention of states? Well, the, uh, they'll try lots of things. Um, I mean, the uh, Wolf Pack is actively working uh, convention of states process to try to get uh, repeal Citizens United. Um, they're never going to get to 34 states, and they don't aggregate. Their application does not aggregate with ours. Um, and so if they get four states and we get 30 states, that's not 34. Each, each application has got to get 34 on its own. But I would expect that somebody is going to stand up and move for a Citizens United kind of amendment at a convention called under our auspices. And if that happens, here's what's going to happen. It's going to be uh, ruled to be non-germane because it's not related to the application. And there'll be a vote taken on germaneness. 31, you know, assuming the political climate is somewhat like today, there are 31 states that um, are, are controlled both houses by Republican. By definition, 34 states had to agree to, to support our, our application. So you're, you're going to start with 34 states that have said, we want to limit federal power. Those delegations will be sent with a mission to limit federal power. And let's give them, for the sake of discussion, all 16 of the other states. I don't think they'll get all 16, but let's just give it to them. So they got 16 votes, we've got 34 votes. You know, we win that vote every single time. There is no scenario where 16 beats 34. And so, the, the, you know, the 34 will elect the chairman, the, 34, the chairman will rule on germaneness, the 16 states will protest, they'll have, you know, they'll go out and do post-defeat interviews with CNN, and that'll be that. Uh, and we'll move on to the next thing, because they simply don't have the votes. Everybody in this room who's been involved in politics more than two weeks makes political decisions based on counting votes. You know, if Ted Cruz gets elected president of the United States, and let's say he wants to nominate me to the Supreme Court, I would not go through that process because I can count votes. And I know I can't get confirmed. Why would I subject myself to that when I know I can't get confirmed? And so every, everybody does that. We count votes, and we need to understand that counting votes uh, is, is a part of it. And just because they can raise the question doesn't mean they have any chance of winning the vote. So, I mean, I, I think what the other side would do would start with the process. And what I, I think I neglected to mention trying to <clears throat> fit, fit so many things into the opening is most of the pieces of legislation, that, and, and I, I mean, again, I, I agree completely with Rob Nadelson, with, with Mike, I, I don't, on, on how all this should work, right? It's, it's a conversation about 
what the other side tries to do and what the odds are of them being successful. Most of the pieces of legislation that were introduced into Congress, which, which absolutely, if, in, in court, failed legislation, that cuts against them, right? But, but it, does, it, does give us, it does give us a sense of what those members were thinking, and then the ABA report and the House Judiciary report, and uh, most of that all suggests that um, Congress at least might and perhaps does have the power to determine how delegates are, are selected. Uh, again, I, I think that's wrong, right? But I think this is where the left starts. Right? I'm, I'm bringing this up because this is where the left starts, right? Um, they would say, well, okay, we're going to have a convention. Obviously, we're going to, the delegates have to be elected, right? This isn't 1787, right? This is 2016. Mm -hmm. We elect people. Um, we're, we're a democracy. Uh, and, uh, and most of them allocated delegates based on either the House of Representatives or Congress as a whole. So it looked like, the, you know, 435, 535, one of them was 538 because it offered three to D.C. Um, you would have the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, recently, uh, Thorn in the side of some conservative organizations, suing and saying, well, we have to be represented. And, uh, and that's one question. And then the next question is, how do you vote? And most of the pieces of legislation introduced, and again, I mean, Mike's answer is absolutely right on the law, um, right? But this does tell us how a lot of people thought about this, right? And, and, the ABA, and the ABA said this as well, and I think the ABA is, you know, beyond reproach, right? Uh, but uh, uh, they said, well, well, obviously, up to 1787, if you had a convention of states, the states would vote as states, right? You'd have one vote per state. That's very obvious. The fact that that lingered for some time after that is understandable, but today, the ABA said, and I think most federal judges would agree, and I think we, we had a case recently kind of on this uh, actually out of the state of Texas, one person, one vote, Baker versus Carr. This is just, I mean, I mean I'm sure we agree on Baker versus Carr is one of the most outrageous decisions right. of the Supreme Court. Right. It's a controlling decision of the Supreme Court, though, right? And it wouldn't, it's not a stretch for, just, for five justices on the court to say, well, yeah, of course, California sued and Vermont filed a, a brief in support. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, of course it should be voting per capita, per, per person. Well, I mean, first of all, the, the, uh, we have to assume that the Republican-controlled Congress of today is gonna behave like the Democrat-controlled Congress of the 1970s to even start having a case. And I, I don't think that that's a, a safe bet. Um, Moreover, the scholarship that was on the table at that time isn't anywhere close. I mean, here is what was said on, on March 1st, uh, 1787, or excuse me, 1788, during the ratification uh, provision. It said, the proposed federal constitution cannot be very da dangerous while the legislatures of the different, different states possess the power of calling a convention, appointing the delegates, and instructing them in the articles they wish abolished altered or abolished. That's original source materials. That comes from a 27-volume series called the Docu Documentary History of the Ratification of the Constitution. We have better history, better knowledge than they had in, in place at the time. And we can bury them. If, they, if Congress tries to do that, I will sue them. I, I sued Congress when they tried to manipulate the, the process on the Equal Rights Amendment, and I won in an in a, in a, a era that is as liberal as today from the judiciary, if not more liberal. And so I don't run in fear of this, uh, and, I, I, and they don't have the votes. They, today, they don't have the votes. Congress would not vote this way today. I think, that, you know, I, I think that's right, I, but, 
But you don't, I mean, the, 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 there's going to be at least one congressional election oh, yeah. intervene before you get there, right? Possibly two, three, right? You're not going to pull up the tent stakes if, the, if, if Nancy Pelosi is back in the speaker's chair, right? I mean, I, and, and again, I mean, this, this right. is just the kind of the wargaming out how this thing works. I think, I mean, I, I think if you just pulled the American people and I, you know, I work on defending the Electoral College, so I believe in uh, I, I believe in the Constitution. I believe in fighting back against all this. Um, but the polls on that issue for me are not very good. The polls on this issue for you would be horrible, right? Should should we have one man, one vote, one person? Sorry, one person, one vote at a constitutional amendments convention, or should we vote the way that, or you know, should we do it the way James Madison wants? The, the polling on that. I, the pulling on that when it's a, when it's very similar on other issues is is a disaster for us. Well, I, I maybe, uh, I, nonetheless, I don't believe in the doctrine of preemptive surrender. Uh, you know, just because it might be difficult, just because it might be hard, doesn't mean that we give up in advance. And so, it is the constitutional tool we have. You know, and let's just okay, let's war game it. We have controlled the House of Representatives as Republicans more than we've controlled the Senate as Republicans in, in recent memory. So if, bad case scenario, we end up with proportional representation by congressional district, okay, what am I, what am I afraid of? Uh, uh, you know, I'm afraid of California? I got Texas. I got Florida. You know, I, I've got a lot of good-sized states that will more than balance off uh, California. I, I'm not worried about that, it, but I'm going to sue them the moment anybody attempts to do this. It have to be, the way it would happen procedurally is Congress would have to purport to say it's going to be uh, proportional representation. And when they, they, the moment they say that, I file a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of that. Moreover, everybody pretty well agrees the convention sets its own rules. So if Congress says it's proportional representation, thank you very much. That's, that's your nice opinion, Congress. When we get to the convention, we're going to vote one state, one vote on that to, to begin with. And, and so, um, you know, there will be battles, there will be litigation if Congress does the wrong thing. But I don't think it's a safe bet to say that Congress is going to do the wrong thing. Uh, I, I think that where Congress is going to engage and where we're going to have a real political battle of a major sort is in the ratification stage. I don't think that they're going to mess with this because uh, now, because you know, you've got all these state legislators who just passed this, they mess with this, they're going to have a lot of opponents in their next primary elections. Uh, and so ratification, the gates will be opened the Donnybrook will be upon us, and we'll be in the fight of our life to see if we can actually limit the federal government. But it's not going to be at the convention stage. It's not going to be Congress messing with us up front. It's going to be they will unleash their fury in great measure at ratification. See, I, I guess I disagree with that because I think the precedent, and this is what really struck me, when I, when I sat down to, to write about this with with Matt Spaulding at Heritage, what really struck me, and this is before anybody was really talking about calling a convention, uh, was that if it happens, the first one matters hugely, right? right? I agree. Right? I mean, because that's the precedent, right? I mean, and it, smart people on our side, smart people on their side, everybody is going to understand. Uh, I mean, that that then opens the door, makes it makes conventions after that more likely because you have a precedent, you would know about how that works. 
I think the other side, I, mean, I think they would be crazy not to fight with everything they have over the precedents established by how a convention would work. And I think, I think we would be crazy not to fight and be prepared for, I mean, and again, just going off the question, assuming we get to that point, to be, to be prepared for figuring out, I mean, what, um, what really matters about that, right? I think proportional representation doesn't matter that much. I think Congress putting their hand in it matters a lot. Um, I think voting by states matters a lot, but I also think it's an issue we might not win on. But it changes, that then changes the math a lot when you think about if there would be conventions in the future, right? It, it's one thing if states vote one state, you know, if it's one state, one vote, I think the math is better for us than if it is, uh, if all these delegates just vote as individuals, which is what Congress proposed, which, which I agree is, that's bizarre. I was surprised to discover that Congress had advocated, I mean, not even, Right, I mean, voting just as individuals, right? Disregarding states altogether at the convention. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's like, it's like the, it's, I, I have to get this out because it's timely, right? We have a convention process that's been going on in the country right now. And for those of us who's participated in county and state uh, conventions, I've never been to a national convention, the rules are knowable. They're not that, they're not that obscure. And a lot of Americans think that this is a big scam. And a lot of people have been telling me, that thing that happened in Colorado proves why we have to get rid of the Electoral College. Right? I mean, this is, this is the public opinion we have to be prepared to deal with if we're going to go down this road. Well, I, I, I understand that public opinion is important to all this, but the public opinion narrative that you know, overrides some of those details is the American public is sick and tired of a runaway federal government. That is a far bigger truth than they're concerned about the nitpicky details. And it, frankly, it is wargaming is the reason that I started the, the Convention of the States process rather than the going for the balanced budget amendment. Because like Rita, I went back and read all the applications, and I think they're gonna, they're, they've got a, they're, they will be sued. They may beat us to 34 states uh, of approving it. They're not going to beat us to a convention because there will be litigation on the issue of aggregation. And my lawyer answer is, Whatever Congress says will be considered a political question on that precise question, because it really is open. You know, Delaware says we want a, con uh, a convention to adopt this exact amendment, and nobody else has ever has, has done yeah. that. Delaware is not going to aggregate if it's litigated. I think and, that's right. And 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 so. Um, so they're going to be tied up in litigation. So the reason I said, okay, look it, since there's going to be litigation, why don't we start fresh? And if as long as we're going to start fresh, why don't we do it right? Because a balanced budget, as the senator said earlier, the balanced budget standing alone doesn't fix the problems. And, and so um, let's do it right. Let's, let's limit the power of the federal government generally. And that's how the Convention of States process. It was wargaming. It was figuring out what the other side was doing. That's how we got going on this. Let me just uh, say here in the prior panel, I promised that we would talk further. Remember I mentioned the aggregability question. And so you guys have started in. Thank you. Uh, please, would you, would you talk to the audience a little bit? Just tell them what the aggregation uh, issue is. Both of you, please. You want to go? Well, I, I mean, it's, it's uh, and I think we agree com yeah. completely on this. It's uh, when states, states petition for a convention, what does that actually mean? And there are huge uh, uh, debates over this in very small corners of the political realm. 
uh, over whether everything should aggregate, right, and uh, or whether it has to be exactly word perfect the same. Um, I think that it has to be not word perfect, but I think it has to be very close to the same. Uh, I, I don't think that, uh, and I, I mean, I just I agree with Mike. I think the BBA uh, they are counting in a way that makes it look like they had, they're almost there. That makes sense for them. It's, there's an argument there that, well, anything, you know, if you say BBA, then it doesn't matter how you say it or how you would do it. That's for the convention to sort out. That's kind of a strange argument when you're calling for that narrowly limited of a convention, I think. And that's where, and I think he's, you know, I think Mike's right. It's a, what the court has said in the past, a political question. If Congress doesn't aggregate, it doesn't aggregate. Yeah. So the... Um uh, other piece of background, there have been over 400 applications for a convention of states in our history. And we've never had one because we've never had 34 states on the same subject matter. So the argument that just 34 applications about anything is good enough, history definitively proves that wrong. So you've got to have an agreement on subject matter. And, um, and how close does it have to be? I, I think Trent's answer is, is accurate and I'll just let it stand. Good. Um, we've called this, this uh, conference here to get the leaders of the various state think tanks to think about first this issue and, and whether they want to support it, and if so, uh, how they can with their uh, limited bandwidth uh, do so. Do either of you have uh, thoughts on that subject? Well, you know, first of all, I, I would hope that uh, all the states would, uh, you know, the state policy organizations would support us and would be active. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to uh, uh, divert a lot of budget resources, but just your good word is worth a ton uh, to us. And so if you, uh, uh, if you feel like this is the right thing to do, uh, your good word is the starting point. The more active you'd like to be, the better off. The more you're convinced that this is the best thing that we can be doing for the country, the more resources and time you should devote to it. But uh, the one thing I would ask is, uh, you know, don't buy into the naysayers and the, and the uh, uh, other people that uh, contend that it will be a runaway convention. That, that argument is, is hurtful to us. And so I would just ask you to, you know, just say, you know, this is not our priority right now. If you decide not to participate, just say, you know, you know, we're open to the idea, we like the goals. These are not our priorities for the moment, and let it go at that. That's fine. That's not going to hurt us. And it's the active opposition that would be problematic. Well, I think the, I mean, I, I agree as far as the runaway convention kind of argument. I mean, we, we all should be correct. And that's just not, it's a very, when you, when you dig into it, unless you think, and, and I, I think one of, one of the wonderful things that's come out of this whole discussion is, uh, Mike's scholarship on the original convention, which is uh, which is rebutting this claim that's come up in uh, various areas that somehow the original constitutional convention was illegitimate, which is just simply not um, it's, it's it's not good history. Uh, but uh, I, you know what what happened to us in what is happening to us in Oklahoma, I just think is is an important cautionary tale, and it's one of the reasons why. Uh, we're always reluctant to take on things that go outside of our area where potentially, and this, because of some of the opposition and some of the kind of opposition, 
it's very legislative district specific whether this is an easy vote for a legislator. But for some, but, but ultimately this is not, there is no interest in the state of Oklahoma who gets gored. There's no hospital association that shows up in your district with robocalls if you vote for this, right? And, uh, and, and our concern is, is uh, partly just, uh, you know, and, and we have a C4 that, uh, that, um, that scores legislators on votes. We, we have to be very miserly with what we score or else it, they can take all the easy votes and then, you know, vote for Medicaid expansion and a few other nasty things and, uh, and look like conservative champions. And we are, I mean, we're the keepers of that label, right? In, in, in a, just as, as many of you are in, in your own states, right? It, it, it does matter a lot what we say, and we have to, uh, uh, I mean, we, we have to prioritize. We all know that. I mean, you wouldn't, you can't run a successful organization if you don't do that. Um, and uh, so that's, I mean, that's, that's my concern. I think it's the concern of a lot of people in this room is uh, uh, we, we, can't, we can't give these guys easy votes that allow them to, uh, to manipulate us and prevent us from holding their feet to the fire on some of these really important issues. That, I mean, Medicaid expansion is this issue, right? This is what we're talking about. It's federal power. It's federal power coming into the state. Uh, I assume you're not suggesting that people shouldn't vote on a convention of state merely because it might be an easy vote that you would have to score? No, I, I, no, I think that's, it's, it, that's an institutional interest, right? Is, uh, is if, I mean, if this is easy um, in your state, then, uh, then it's also an easy decision to, to let it happen um, and not dilute what you're trying to do. Uh, and, and, you know, and, I mean, it, it, it is... It is suggestive, right? You guys had people vote for this who are at the same time working for Medicaid expansion. It suggests that there's something going on that's not just a bunch of people. Well, who here's really here's what's happening there. Want to save the country? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Right. Uh, here's what's happening there. It's human nature. People are going to be more conservative on how much power the other guy should have, other than how much power they should have, and so. Uh, I want people who will vote. I don't want more power in Washington. I want every state legislator to vote. I want, I want the most left-wing, progressive state legislator to vote selfishly on this issue. I, to say, we want to take power from Washington, D.C. and give it to the states. Now, we've got power back to the states. We fight like the Dickens on state legislative issues to get the right policy answers there. But, on, but the founders designed it this way for the very reason to have institutional jealousies be the check on power. We need to have the states limiting federal power because we want the power for ourselves, fine. And, and then as voters and activists and think tanks, we've got to limit the state power. And, and so, but getting the, the power shifted from Washington, D.C. back to your state increases the bandwidth and the importance of every state policy organization because you're going to be dealing with more important issues than you're dealing with now because right now, well, it's a federal mandate. What can we do about it? Well, not much. But have you had any traction from progress? I mean, I, I agree, and I think we had a meeting, Federalism in Action or something, three years ago with some of the same people talking about exactly, exactly that, right? That, that in theory, I mean, the Constitution is designed that way. I think the New Dealers very intentionally disrupted that system, but uh, it, is, uh, it, is, it is supposed to be designed to use ambition to counteract ambition. 
Um, but progressives don't. I mean, the progressives in yeah. Vermont, they, they, vote, they join the National Popular Voting Interstate Compact because they don't care about their state. I think their progressive ideology right. overrides right. all this. I mean, the, do you find that there are any progressives who are really helping you try to take power back into the state? No, that's, that's been rare. But at a grassroots level, we see it. If you, if you poll, you know, polling does play some role. Uh, you know, people that are very liberal want to have their decisions made more locally than nationally. In fact, you know, it's like lo the local food thing. Yeah. You know, if we, if we can popularize that, it's, it, it's a good talking point for us, and it helps. Good. Good. We're now going to turn it over uh, to questions and, uh, from the audience. Uh, who would like to begin? <coughs> Um, when we say that we're going to have 34 states and when we get to the convention and, and the, the left side tries to come in with something ridiculous, well, it's not germane and we've got 34 votes. Well, if it took 10 years to get your 34 votes, aren't those legislators changed over the 10 years? Is it not possible that we get to our 34 states and suddenly we've got 26 states? You know, for the people who didn't vote for it, and then a few extras who come in and say, well, we're going to put all the liberal stuff in, even though it wasn't in the application, no. because now we're making our own rules and we're voting our own way. And is this not a problem? Well, it, in theory, if, if everything was static, that's the case. Um, Maryland is one of the states that is in the, the BBA count for uh, a convention, for, for a balanced budget amendment. They get to 31, 32. Maryland's going to rescind its application. In the case I litigated, uh, we validated the idea that states can rescind their um, ratifications. And so that's been, that's been ruled on as, as close as you're going to get. There's, there's no doubt, basically, that states can rescind their applications. Otherwise, we would already be at a balanced budget amendment today because more than 34 states have ever done a balanced budget amendment application, but a bunch rescinded. And so those rescissions netted out that they're about 29 right now. So all that to say, if, we're, if there's a political landslide and some of the states, like Idaho got taken over by Democrats and um, Texas got taken over by Democrats or whatever, then then some of the other states that are still controlled by Republicans should rescind their applications if it looks dangerous at the moment. And then we would be back down under 34. And so up until you get the 34th state, it's fluid. And so if, if there had been a political upheaval of a great nature, you know, if we move from a couple states, that's not going to be a big deal. But if we've gone a political landslide where the 34 states we have now 12 of them are, are gone over to the dark side of the force, you probably would want to rescind your applications and wait for a, a more opportune moment. Um, I think we're going to be in this basic position as we are in this country for about, about 10 years. Uh, this next election, you know, who knows what's going to happen in this next election, but I, I think that there will be a correction uh, two years from now. And a lot of the things that were wrong after 2016, if they go that way, I think will be corrected. So we're, we're in basically a pretty good position for a long time. We're not going to be in a good position with more and more generations believing that the purpose of government is to provide for our needs. And so we either get this done now or we probably have given it up forever. 
Thank you. I have not heard uh, any discussion, or at least I don't think I've heard any discussion, about the import of the state ratification debates in the historical understanding of what the Constitution is about and the extraordinary debates that took place, like in my state, North Carolina, they didn't ratify the Constitution on the first time through, second time through. Any comment on the import of those for this undertaking, if any? Um, well, yes. I mean, what I just read to you this morning was from the ratification debates. And, and so um, that's, that's where I wrote the, the lion's share of my article on the uh, lawfulness of the adoption of the Constitution. And you're right. Mattis himself said, if you want to know the meaning of the Constitution, you know, you can look to Philadelphia if you want, but really you should be looking to the ratification debates. And the ratification debates are where they actually made law. Up until there, everything else was a proposal. And so the same thing will be true here. The real um, uh, gist of what will, whatever will be ratified will be, in, you know, the, the future originalism arguments will be taken not just from the, the convention debates, but also from the ratification debates in every state. And so the states that ratify will help set that originalism. But all of that just frames up the, the really important question, how important states are. And that's what we're trying to do, is make states more important in the process. Because states, the way we're going, states are going to be just simply administrative districts of the federal government who are there to implement in a kind of a semi-logical fashion, adapting for local climate conditions, the edicts from Congress and the federal bureaucracies. And I don't want to live in a country like that. I want to live in a country where the states are real states and are deciding the bulk of the issues that people live under every day. I, I mean, I, I think I agree with all of that. I mean, the ratification debates are the best guide to understand the original meaning of, of Article 5, if that was the, the import of your question, and they would be, again, on any, anything that was, uh, uh, that was ratified. Uh, so, yeah. Some uh, critics of, of the push for an Article 5 convention say things like, you know, the problem's not the Constitution, the problem are, are the players in the game, we just need to elect better people, we need to put our focus into these other things to, to make sure that we're defending the Constitution we have instead of changing the Constitution that we have. So my question is related to that, and, and you talked about the Commerce Clause, and I guess I'm a hopeful idealist waiting for some white knight on the court to come in and recognize the limits of the Commerce Clause and, and truly begin to roll back the regulatory state. So my fear is that in an Article 5 process, we amend the Constitution in a way that actually moves the goalposts on Commerce Clause permanently so that you know it, it actually erodes what I think were the protections the Commerce Clause should have had. So in other words, it expands permanently the administrative state. It says, you know what, we're actually okay with this much federal government. We're going to rein in federal government, but it's, it's only so much. And it's not as much as I would like. You know, so it kind of forecloses our opportunity to push, to push back even further, maybe. I, I, think that's, I think that's possible. I mean, Mike, you made the, the point, right? I mean, proposed and failed legislation is a, it, to the extent that it has any precedential value, is precedential value the other way. So one of my concerns, which is related to that, is if you have some really great amendments introduced and they fail, it gives the court and polit politicians space after a convention to say, well, look, they, they, your position was proposed. It was debated. It lost. Um, so that's, that's one possible outcome. The other would be as you describe, and I, I think 
I mean, that is where, I mean, Mike is, Mike is right. It's not, it's, not, it's not even a fair question, really. It, it's, but it is something to think about, which is what, what are the trade-offs, right? What are the trade-offs as you go into this? Because you're not going to, uh, you're not going to repeal Social Security. I mean, it, it feels weird even saying that, and I, I don't know if this is being broadcast out, right? But that, that's not even, people don't debate that anymore, right? It's, in uh, uh, these civil rights laws, as I, as I said from the, the lectern, and it's a huge, it's a tragedy, uh, Justice Thomas has pointed this out, right, that so much of that was moored to the Commerce Clause and not the Civil Rights Amendments. Uh, but how, how you go about untangling all that in, in a convention, it, it, you, you would have to, to get anything, there would be some compromises, you would lose some things. Uh, and, uh, and then it becomes, a, it becomes a real personal question about how optimistic you are about can we change the culture back. I'm sort of optimistic. I think it's possible. I'm also pessimistic. I think no matter what you add to the, you know, no matter what you tack on to the end of the Constitution, if we lose the culture, you lose the country. Uh, I'm going to ask, answer both parts of your question. Uh, the, the the people that say, you know, the Constitution is not the problem. The government's the problem. The change the government, not the Constitution. Well, the uh, the question really is, can we effectively change the, the Constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court and make it stick. Because that's the problem. Is the, the Commerce Clause as interpreted by the Supreme Court is the problem, not the Constitution itself. Well, we have, the Supreme Court has been reversed by the 11th Amendment, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment, and once in a great while, you can reverse the Supreme Court by ordinary legislation. I was the guy who named the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. I was the chairman of a group of lawyers who wrote it. And the Hobby Lobby case, a couple years ago now, w was decided on religious freedom grounds, not on the basis of the Free Exercise Clause, which it should have been decided on, but the Supreme Court messed up the Free Exercise Clause, and, and so instead they based it on uh, the RIFRA. And RIFRA was reversing the Supreme Court, and the judge that wrote uh, Smith that we were reversing voted for Hobby Lobby because we tied his hands, and that was Justice Scalia. Um, and so you can effectively reverse the Supreme Court if you do it correctly. But a, a part of what, we, what I hope to accomplish, uh, you know, and, uh, Governor Abbott has got some ideas, Mark Levin, his book, The Liberty Amendments, has some ideas, is that I, we've got to change the Supreme Court to really do some, something good uh, over the long haul because your, your goal for a white knight um, on, the, you know, on the Supreme Court, you need five white knights on the Supreme Court, and you need to sustain five white knights on the Supreme Court. And the process that we have in place isn't going to produce white knights. There, there was only one justice that uh, um, you know, really supported the right position on the Commerce Clause in Lopez, and that was Thomas. That was it. You know, Scalia didn't get it right. I mean, he was, he was better than the others, but he didn't get it right. It was Thomas, one judge. And so the hope for, you know, if, if you know, Scalia on uh, the incorporation doctrine said in oral argument, I, even I have given up on this one. You know, we're going with the incorporation doctrine. There's no historical basis for that. Uh, and so um, as long as we pick the Supreme Court the way we're doing it, we're, we're not going to have a white knight. But if we change the way the Supreme Court's picked, which is possible at our convention, I want the states to appoint the Supreme Court. And the way that would happen, uh, I mean, it, it works a little better mathematically. We don't have to do this. You could raise it to 13 judges. Just math works a little easier. 
If you give them uh, four-year terms, or if you give them eight-year terms, it really doesn't matter that much. Uh, give them a one and done, because you want judicial independence. And if they serve one term and they're done, they can't be reappointed. They'll be independent. And the states rotate. You know, you, if you have uh, 13 seats, four-year terms, 52 seats in a 16-year cycle, 52 years. And so every four years, every state would get appointed a judge. Well, then you're going to have some judges that go to the University of Texas and Texas Tech, rather than all of them going to Harvard, Yale, and Columbia. Uh, and you know, maybe somebody even from Gonzaga might, uh, you know, where I went, um, might, might make on, it on the Supreme Court, which, by the way, Gonzaga is the number one law school in the nation in a particular category, and that is law schools located on the north bank of the Spokane River. In that category, <laughs> it's number one. And, and so, um, but, but we have to, uh, you know, so which is more realistic to, 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 to expect? Some rollback of the Commerce Clause from White Knights on the Supreme Court, or some rollback on the Commerce Clause through a state-driven Article V process? I think any reasonable person would say it's the state process. Just had a couple of questions. One, uh, thanks, Mike and Trent. So I think I heard today, because uh, I represent a think tank, that you guys are comfortable with think tanks either arriving at, oh, they're heartedly in favor and they're going to push it and push articles, or two, that there might be so many other battles like what Oklahoma determined that, um, you know, go forth and do, do good. We're going to remain silent and... Uh, try to keep Oklahoma Republicans from passing the Medicaid expansion at the same time that they were trying to adopt Article 5. Uh, one of the questions I had, though, was often we as state-based think tanks get accused of all of our money comes from the Koch brothers uh, whenever we come out in favor of an issue. Uh, who is funding the various Article 5 efforts so we might be prepared for that question? Well, um Balanced Budget Amendment Task Force is, um, as far as I know, pretty uh, lightly funded and is pretty grassroots oriented. Um, I can tell you that, um, as far as I know, we uh, Convention of States has never received any Koch uh, Brothers funding. Uh, private donations from consistent conservatives, wide variety of people. I don't know the details, and I'm glad that I don't know the details, which means I don't have the responsibility for raising the money because in the rest of my life, I have responsibility for raising money. Um, and so uh, it, it's just grassroots conservatives, but it, it's, it's not the infamous Koch brothers, uh, to my knowledge. And uh, yeah, please, yeah. Full disclosure, so I'm sitting next to our development director. I can tell you today we have in excess of 60,000 donors around the country. It's just a constant stream of fundraising. It's been actually the easiest thing that I've ever been involved in, in raising money for in our life. People are looking for solutions. They see it as a solution. And we literally, from direct mail, from online fundraising, regularly get four-figure unsolicited checks. And so that's, that's where it's coming from. It's a, now a huge donor base all over the country, all 50 states. I'm going to offer some comments just to wrap up these two panels. But we have time for one more question. So There was a right here. One of my former students. <laughs> um, so in your presentation, and this kind of goes back to something Dr. Ferris had said earlier, you had talked about the kind of more or less empty, contentless faith that people have in the Constitution, and you're concerned that by 
bringing up, you know, question the Constitution that might kind of shake that faith. Um, my question for you is, um, first, a lot of people say that's not good anyway. It, you know, it, they should know what they're talking about, and it's not good to just let it settle. But then second of all, um, that you seem to suggest that in this space of kind of happy ignorance, there's um, space for conservatives to get what they want. And I hear from a lot of supporters of Convention of the States that they don't think that they have either the cultural or institutional space to do that anymore. Um, you know, DC's, you know, corrupt. They're just too, it's too institutionally heavy, for example. So why do you think there is that space then for conservatives to get what they want as it currently is, as opposed to, say, a Convention of the States? Um, well, so, so here's my, I, I, I don't think that's exactly my point. My point is that uh, we, as, we as Americans are fortunate. You read Madison in Federalist 49, and he talks about the respect that time bestows on things. Uh, and, uh, and that, you know, we, we, would de we would desire, I think, I think it's a fair paraphrase of Madison, that we would desire to live in a nation of philosophers where everybody judged everything on the merits all the time. But that's not reality, it's never going to be reality. Where a lot of people are going to favor the status quo whatever it is, uh, and, uh, and they're going to do that without knowing anything about it. So, I mean, we shouldn't, we should never look back to the founding period and disregard John Adams saying, you know, a third of the people were patriots, a third of the people were Tories, and a third of the people had no idea, right? And, uh, um, you know, and, and, and at the same time, I do remind people, the Federalist Papers was written, you know, it's largely written to be read out loud in taverns, right? So. Um, semi-inebriated people could actually uh, listen to it and understand it, which speaks well of, of uh, American society at the time. Uh, but, uh, uh, but I do think that we shouldn't, I mean, we should not disregard the fact that Americans are still patriotic. I saw this, this uh, poll a few years ago, I think it was about the Declaration of Independence, but it's just, I mean, it, you know, maybe it's just a late night show gimmick and nothing more, but you, know, you walk around, you can ask people, do you like the Constitution? People like the Constitution. They like our country. People are patriotic. AMC has the miniseries turn. HBO had the John Adams series. These books sell really well. Uh, and I mean, I, I think all of that should give us hope that our culture is not lost. There are, there are things that we can use to revive it and to turn it back. And I, that's my point about this is, whether, whether it's a reason to do it and be really thoughtful about how we manage it and how we use it, recognizing that, that the most likely, likely outcome is probably not an amendment that gets ratified. It's probably the process, right? Is, and the outcomes, that, the other outcomes that flow from the process, um, or, or whether we get it, or whether this is a reason to, to not go down this road, we, we should always be thinking about how we try to rekindle that interest or build on that, that, those shreds of faith that people do have in our constitutional system of government, because ultimately we, we have to win back the culture, right? I mean, all of this could go, could go exactly the way Convention of States wants, right? We could, you could get nine amendments, new amendments to the Constitution, and it could ultimately just be a, a delaying action, right? And you could have the, the court and the people, you know, elect Bernie Sanders and he appoints the justices and they just interpret it some way that's more favorable to them or they have their own convention, they replace it all. It's, I mean, it is the culture. I guess that's my point. It is the culture. Whatever, uh, 
you know, whatever else we're, we're doing, you know, we, I think that's one of the things I, I enjoy about <coughs> working at OCPA. Um, and I think, I think this is true of, of pretty much all of our groups that as we work in public policy, we're trying to remind people it's not, you know, it's not just about spending a little bit less money, right? It's, it's about freedom. It's actually about lessening the burden of government on people, education reform, all these things, right? Driving people back to the principles and trying to elevate the discussion and educate people. And this is a great opportunity to do that. Right, but, there, but, but it's also an opportunity for the other side. And I think we, we would be very foolish to not recognize the other side. I mean, this, this would present a golden moment to them to say, look, conservatives have finally come to, the under, to share our understanding that the Constitution is fundamentally flawed. Uh, and uh, and we, we should at least be ready to re rebut that and explain why, you know, why that's not right. Well, I want, I want to thank both Mike and Trent uh, for a very good discussion here. And uh, before I uh, offer some uh, minute or two of wrap-up comments, please join me in thanking both of them. <laughs> Mike, I wanted to also say, listening to your comments, I look forward to your piece uh, debunking the, the myth that the Philadelphia Convention was a runaway convention. Uh, last, last year, here in the Texas legislature, I was testifying in favor of Representative Miller's bill, uh, that his resolution uh, to uh, apply for a convention of states. And then, uh, Trent, like you, I found out there are a lot of John Birch Society <laughs> members around. Um, and all of them, and the Eagle Forum people, yes, that's all we heard was it's a runaway convention. I, I agree with Mike that they are wrong, but I also responded at the time that I believe, and not just I, a lot of us believe that the Philadelphia Convention produced the greatest governing document in the history of the world, and therefore if that was a runaway convention, let's have another one. <laughs> um, but I want to I wanna close here with, with a conversation that uh, then law professor uh, Antonin Scalia had in 1979. And the reason I'm doing this is in response, uh, three or four of you at the least, last night I was talking to you, were raising the issue, well, what did, didn't, didn't Justice Scalia say it's the wrong century for, so, so I, I dug out his, his, uh, his remarks last night. Let me just read you uh, a few of them. As I say, this was 1979, Scalia was responding to uh, uh, a question about Richard Rovere, whom I mentioned uh, uh, earlier, who said that if you, if you have an amendments convention, it could reinstitute uh, uh, segregation and even slavery. As I said, he was part of this uh, argument begun by Yale Law Professor uh, Charles Black, and, and Rovere says they could even eliminate the Supreme Court. And Scalia's response is, is, I think, very instructive for our purposes. First thing he said, he says, all those things are possible, I suppose. He said, it's possible Congress could pass a law tomorrow eliminating Christmas. Right? He said, but the bottom line is this, quote, whether the risk is sufficient to cause anyone to be opposed to a convention depends on how, we th on how high we think the risk is and how necessary we think the convention is. So it really comes down to whether we think a convention is necessary. Scalia then says, I think it is necessary for some purposes and I'm willing to accept what seems to me a minimal risk of intemperate action. And then he, he, he goes on to say, 
He says, I have not proposed an open convention. That was what he was saying was it's the wrong century for an open convention. He said, no one in his right mind would propose that in preference to a convention limited to those provisions he wants changed. But then notice what he says next after saying, I'm not calling for an open convention. He says, there comes a point, however, at which one has to be willing to run the risk of even an open convention to get the changes that are wanted. I think that risk is worth taking. It's not much of a risk. Three quarters of the states would have to ratify whatever came out of the, out of the convention and therefore I don't worry about it too much. And then, he, and then he says, I don't have any great fear of an open convention since three quarters of the states have to ratify it and the clucking of Richard Revere and others about it is simply an intentional attempt to create panic and to make the whole idea sound unthinkable. To me, it's not unthinkable at all. It's entirely thinkable. And then he concludes. He says, I do not have a lack of trust in the American people. Congress has become professionalized. Its members have a greater interest than ever before in remaining in office. And it is served by a bureaucracy and is much more subject to the power of individualized pressure groups than to the unorganized feelings of the majority of the citizens. This and other factors have created a real feeling of disenfranchisement that I think has a proper basis. And he says, I therefore would like to see that amendment process used just once. He says, I, he says, I do not care what it is used for the first time, but using it once will exhort an enormous influence on both the Congress and the Supreme Court. It will establish the parameters of what can be done and how. And after that, both the Congress and the court will behave much better." End quote. All I can say to that is, here's hoping. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.